the current physics that we have in the universe is not sufficient to explain the life forms in it. So we can explain the universe, but we can't explain life. So that means that there are missing physical principles that allow life to exist that are not yet within physics. And that is the emergence of novelty, selection, evolution. And it's not out with, it's not out with the purview of physics. It's just that physics have never, it's all, physics has always been about looking back and understanding initial conditions, making simplifications, coming up with mechanism and um, an explanation. I think explanation is super important. And then, and then being able to apply that to well-defined controlled systems that will behave in that manner, be it a Newtonian cradle or a satellite you're gonna send to the moon. And so, and, and those things are good. But when it comes to things that are generating in a, a um, novelty, they kind of break the laws of physics. Well, they don't break the laws of physics, but they, they do, odd things that physics can't really understand. And so that's why I think physics as a discipline has to kind of really challenge that. Lee Cronin is the Regis Chair in Chemistry at the University of Glasgow and the originator of assembly theory. He is interested in not just the origin of life that we see here, but in the general phenomena that explains the creation of life. Uh, here we talk about assembly theory, life, biology, and some scattered issues around time, fundamental physics, and entropy. Uh, if you like these conversations and want to support the project, please consider subscribing to the channel. That really helps us out. Uh, here is my conversation with Lee Cronin. So this idea of extending evolution beyond the biological scope uh, can be a little bit tricky for people to get their mind around. So what's going on here? evolution beyond biology yeah that's that's pretty wild i mean let's start with defining evolution the best we can you know lots of people particularly uh, from some people who basically basically got a non-scientific agenda kind of say evolution, uh, evolution isn't true and it's just you know loose but evolution certainly is a well understood physical phenomena particularly in biology and for evolution before understanding molecular biology what we saw is that biological objects interact with each other and produced offspring either by their interactions, by in some manner, some uh, sexual reproduction or asexual reproduction. That offspring will then exist in the environment and, um, and you know, normally would be kind of like its parents, but occasionally they might have some um, features that make them less fit or more fit. And if you think about it, if you're able to get food from the environment and exist, if you're less fit, you'll die quicker. And if you're more fit, you'll be able to produce more offspring. So evolution basically is the is really the, I wouldn't call it the physics, but the science of survival. We know at the molecular level in Darwinian evolution that basically there is a genetic, that we have a genetic code and the variation in that genetic code can give us advantages and disadvantages and there's a big debate about how that 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 process occurs whether it's random selection random mutation um, and that provides the engine for all evolution that we know in biology now because we interact in technology because human beings are now you know we're biological we're cultural we're technological there is an argument to say that, let's say we made a very catchy song or tune just now, we could let, we could not infect, but inspire others to copy that. And the survival of that tune um, uh, would uh, propagate perhaps and survive. And maybe someone would adapt the tune to make it more catchy. So it could become almost go viral for a period of time and would live in a certain uh, um, uh sphere of a metasphere so it's loosely related to um but um uh, but not directly dependent upon biological entities but the technology it's now before biology so when we then say well, is there evolution before biology if we define darwinian evolution survival the fittest by natural selection then it's hard to understand how evolution occurred before um um, before um, um, kind of 
before the origin of life, how does evolution start? And so that's, I think, um, a really important question that is, is there evolution more slowly? And my feeling is that selection um, 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 is, the, is the engine that produces the machinery and the evolution is a particular type of machinery in biology and, and it really supercharges selection. It's like a selection amplifier. So one of the things that we're trying to do is understand how we can create evolutionary systems without biology. And that's the challenge right now, which is super exciting. So how's that going, looking for selection in the chemical space? I think that, well, we're, so yeah, so we know what we're looking for finally, which is kind of like, sounds quite bizarre. I'm a chemist. So as a chemist, I'm kind of like, and I'm wanting to look at the, not just the origin of life, I've long said it, looking for the origin of life is almost a bit like just saying, I want to understand how the star in our solar system ex came into life and no other star, you know, where was the exact hydrogen, what the exact events, rather than looking up into the sky and saying, oh, every night, on average, somewhere in the universe, there is, you know, some sun suns being born and some suns dying. And it's a statistical thing. And I would like to do the same thing to life and say, well, are there life, is life starting on some worlds and dying on other worlds? And what does that look like? And so when we were thinking, and before I would say that in my work, and it's not just down to me, I think there's lots of people, people work for me, my collaborators, the community, the current zeitgeist, if you like, that there is a kind of a recognition that probably um, the, um, that looking for the origin of life took people kind of looking in one way, which was maybe rather myopic and backward looking and looking for the precise events rather than asking, what is the phenomena that gives rise to life in general? And so that took us a wee while to really get there. I mean, I, I think over 10 years, I've been thinking in that way. But the problem is, I'm like, say, right, I'm going to make a life form. And everyone's like, yeah, good luck with that. And I mean, even, you know, I often get kind of uh, comments on a TED talk I gave where I said, well, we'll do it in two years. And that is quoted a lot. And I stand by that. But just, and it sounds like a cop out, right? But it's just the wrong two years because I am pretty sure, and this is what I meant by that two year comment, is that once we understand what we're looking for, that we should take us two years of experiments to basically do it. And so the problem was, uh, problem it, well, not is, is like, what is life? What does it do? What is evolution? What does it do? What are we looking for in the lab? And what we've kind of just realized that just in the last, I would say, two years, since may, or maybe three years, I mean, COVID seems to have taken the history way back, like, when did, where were we? Basically, in the middle of 2019, I realized what we were looking for, and we were looking for selection. And selection needs to produce, it allows us to produce complexity allows us to produce complex objects from simple building blocks like ah oh, simple stuff through time being selected builds more complex stuff if that more complex stuff happens to be able to survive the the environment weathering radiation other stuff and it's able to somehow influence the production of itself then you get this loop, which is not quite evolutionary, but pre-evolutionary, but very similar to evolution. And you get selection and then you build a genetic machine. And so what we're doing in the lab right now is we literally have experiments ongoing where we're looking for the construction of genetic machines from scratch, from sand. And, that's, uh, and the mechanism for that is, well, the observable for that is looking for complexity. The mechanism for that is unknown in detail but we have an idea and uh, it, i'm super excited because basically we just need to go and look at the you know magnifying glass on the on the experiment and look and it's going to be like any phenomena my prediction is that um that seeing the emergence of selection um, from abiotic abiogenesis in the environment to start to give us evolutionary systems will be easy like, like, so some, it will give you feeble um, objects, but they will be able to become more sophisticated over time.
more quickly. People kind of get complex, com confused by the complexity of the cell, but the cell, that cell, that's an amazing thing. That cell is evidence of 4 billion years of technology for evolution. And then when you look at the cell, go, oh, wow, it took us 4 billion years to do that. It's like, okay, I can get that. That's kind of cool. Whereas I think people look at the cell and go, oh my gosh, how did that form out of nothing right now? The answer, it didn't, it couldn't. It required 4 billion years of search and destroy and survive. And so, yeah, I think that's kind of evolution in a nutshell. And I think we're going to, you know, understand the phenomena of, in the universe of selection to evolution that gives biology and not just, well, life, right? Our life on Earth, I would call biology and I would call other life elsewhere, not biology, something else. Astrobiology is maybe non-Earth biology. Who, who cares? But our biology on Earth certainly feels special. Like you said, it's a selection amplifier. But going along this train of thinking, could you yield multiple biologies if you just go down to the combinatorial space in, in chemistry? Yeah, I, I think so. And I think that that's a conjecture. I mean, um, I mean, I, the thing that's exciting about this as a scientist, I mean, I am certain about the experiments I would like to try. I, am, I have some curiosity about what I would like to see. I'd like there to see, ch I'd like to see change. Um, you know, right? Uh, and so I, I'm not entirely sure exactly what it's going to throw at me. So, um, but I think there's a phenomena there. I mean, no one has seen a star form um, up close, but you can posit, you know, gas, gravity, accretion. At some point when all gas collapses in, you get this densification and the gravity basically grinds everything together. And then you get to the point where there's the gravity overcomes a strong nuclear force, which is just, if you think about it, it's the most mind-blowing mind thing, actually. The gravity, the weakest force in the universe, or well, not the weakest, but one of the weaker ones, that basically at some point can basically own the strong force and say, nope, you are now going to fuse. And so I think that um, we understand that, and I think we'll understand this. The problem is that we have chemists who are, wanting to just do chemistry, which is great. Chemists should do chemistry, they should be allowed to. Evolutionary biologists who basically don't care about chemistry are just frustrated with the, what's going on. Geologists who understand, want to understand the earth. People who are trying to kind of put together this complexity. And then, and then there's this other community who refuses to believe that it's possible. And when I say, well, I don't believe, they say, we don't believe you. And I say, that's great, you shouldn't believe us. It's not about belief, it's about a well-formed experiment. And I think until 2019, 2018, I really didn't have, you know, I, was, I could say to people, I'm going to make an organic life, you know, and I grind sand up in a pot. But what would success look like? And I feared that, you know, even if I had made a, a life form or a selection engine, that people would say, well, what is it? Is it a cell? Is it is it a bit of sand? Is it a blob? What, you know, and then I say, well, actually, we want a a machinery where we have a complexity audit, where we have simple stuff in, complex stuff out, and we look how time and energy and stuff basically forms these objects over time. And it is the interplay of time as a resource and stuff and energy together that, that, that gives you existence through persistence. And uh, because physics doesn't accept time as being real, it's emergent. There's no way that physicists could actually ever understand the origin of life and biology ab initio, which is insane. Right. Let's take that aside. So, I mean, I'm totally in agreement with you. I can't see time as anything but fundamental, but would you mind explaining um, what you mean by time being fundamental? Yeah, I mean, remember that I'm, uh, you know, I, 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 I like to talk with authority, but maybe I like to talk with some knowledge of experiments I can do in my laboratory. And I think that one of my one of my strengths as a person who likes to think and also likes to experiment is is that my thoughts normally need to be controlled by my experiments. So I don't go off on some kind of random like because I simply don't have the computational intellectual power to really bottom those things out. I like to think by doing. Um, but as a chemist, for me the 
the process of change, which obviously talk, they talk about ordering events, is, is time. And, um, and I'm beginning to suspect, and probably not now suspect, and almost on the brink of right, doing experiments and proving that actually it's the, it's the wrong way around. Now, there are kind of, maybe we mislabel things. Maybe I'm not talking about time, but there's, and so let's say um, time is the thing you do when you order, where there's, there's a, time allows you to order events and time allows you to measure intervals. And that could be time. But I, I'm saying, and there's space in which I can move in. So I move in space and require time. But what I'm beginning to kind of see is that there is a zero dimensional thing that isn't space, Cartesian space, that exists outside of space, which is literally expanding, in which um, provides a, a disordering uh, over that we would measure as time. And this is a fundamental membrane, if you like, that, but, but it's a very interesting membrane because everything in the universe is in the same membrane, but it's about, it's almost like a memory of interactions, but also it's a substrate in which interactions are allowed to occur. And it's very hard to kind of articulate because human beings have never existed in that. And so, uh, and so um, when I talk to computer scientists and some the physicists, they're just like, they are mystified by this. They probably feel sorry for me and they probably kind of think it's kind of, you know, I'm suddenly just woken up one day and thought that, oh, I'll have the time argument. And I think that people, people that say that time is emergent fundamentally, well, and it's not something time is not emergent because um, the future can't be predicted. Right? So that's kind of important. Um, a, a, a kind of idea and they were saying well why if time is emergent why would the future be predictable well if you've got this block universe and basically the ordering events allows you to move in one direction and you have this past hypothesis then really in a deterministic universe the entire future is mapped out you're just moving through it and actually some people like to believe you could even find a way to move back in it and so backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. But actually, we don't ever see that. In fact, you only can go forwards in time. And it appears that as you go, that, that time in the future, there are things in the future that appear that have no precedent in the past. And that, I would say, is evidence that there is an additional thing that is occurring in the universe that escapes our current understanding. Because if you think, let's say you take a snapshot of, let's say you look back one year in the past, and then you look back two years in the past, and that you are the present day. Well, two years in the past, you can say, oh, this thing was happening. And then, then as it made the transition from two years in the past to one year in the past, oh, there's this new thing. Now, if I take this new thing, maybe let's say it's an invention of some kind. That invention of some kind wasn't predicted from in the past, but now I know it, I can understand it with the current laws of the physics, so I can integrate it into this my current model of the world, but still it doesn't help me predict with any accuracy what happens in the future. Of course, there are some things we know are gonna similarities, like the way the internet works or the way that you know medicine has worked and evolution and technology and so on. But what I'm saying is we cannot um, understand the emergence of or the or the or the assembly of. Um, novel objects and that really is something that I'm struggling with right now but I am so unqualified right this is a it combines philosophy advanced, uh, fundamental mathematics because I'm kind of saying that apart from a small number of rules I have a low memory that mathematics is a a, a constructed paradigm it's, there's no platonic universe in which you know aliens will not understand pentagons and that's like mathematicians are like you're just insane it's like not possible, of course, all aliens understand pentagons. This is platonic universe, but that's that's not. So, so on that point, are you are you on board with constructivism? Yeah, kind of. I'm not really sure what the nitty gritty of constructivism is, but I think I am quite. There's a guy called Nick Gizen, Nicholas Gizen, who uh, I think is a says very says it's very kind of. You know, that gives gives some compelling arguments about why time is fundamental, and I 
and I, I am with him and also Lee Smolin. But I think that, that I'm, there is a kind of this argument that the, the pure mathematicians have about, play, you know, you and I, I could tell you what, I could imagine, ask you imagine a pentagon, imagine a pentagon, I can imagine a pentagon, and I'm pretty sure your pentagon and my pentagon are going to have salient platonic features, you know, they have, it's probably symmetrical, it's going to have five, you know, five vertices and all this stuff. And now is that because we live in a platonic universe or we've shared a cultural heritage mathematics back to the Sumerians or wherever it was and you know all the way back to kind of the last universal common ancestor and I wonder if our platonic views of the universe are kind of our culturally thing that emerged because we share the same causal history so that's I think super interesting but then you know when it comes to this whole notion of what novelty is I have to really bring it into an experiment right and that's why I'm getting close to this and this idea that, you know, by creating more novelty, what I have to do is there is this interchange between having something that has a rich history. So it's a scaffold. And then I'm, I need to be able to introduce some um, random search or, or scaffolding on that. So scaffolding that's got certain stuff and then I scaffold on top but I'm allowing myself to move through the space to sample and combine things. And then I come up with novel objects that just couldn't be predicted from before, but now they exist. Like they, they go into the set of what's known. And, um, and I'm not explaining this very well, but I think it, once people start to understand um, that's how novelty is generated, then um, we'll start to kind of ask, well, how is that consistent with our laws of physics? Like, you know, and then and, and we will then hold the physicist to kind of account and say, you can't just say in principle, we can know this thing because it's we can see the initial conditions is not enough. And I think that's the thing. If we can keep going back to the simplest things and say the initial conditions are not enough. Why is that? Nick Gizm would say that's because um, numbers are basically, as you know, classical mechanics is uncertain as quantum mechanics. Right, just for two different reasons. Quantum, the uncertainty principle, of quantum mechanics associated with uh, uh, the 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 kind of uh, the understanding momentum space, position space, and all of that, and the fact that you're, when you're interrogating particles, the only way you could interrogate a particle is you're hitting it with a particle of the same order of size. You've got this kind of probabilistic searching in Newtonian space. It's like because you don't know the coordinates of the object to infinite precision then there is some approximation there. So you're, you're not quite sure um, where, you know, the heritage of the object. And that's why there is this kind of uncertainty in all mechanics, not just quantum mechanics. Is the problem that physics is stipulating too much order at the beginning of the universe that you might be uncomfortable with? Yeah, I mean, so I think my, I mean, I, you know, I, I think really to be my day job, I should be digitizing chemistry, looking for artificial life forms, dreaming about how aliens exist and really not intruding on the fundamentals of quantum mechanics and gravity and physics. Because, you know, I'm sure that the train, the physicist training is so superior. And also they have this mathematical grounding um, that, um, you know, allows them to kind of look at the universe and, and really get very pushed very deep. And design very deep experiments and do things, you know, from nuclear fusion and so on. But there is some, there are some que the questions at the foundation, and I think my foundation would be: look, the second law right now is not really a, it's, it's not the second law is a law, sure, but we don't really know what the the cause of that law is. The law of gravity, we kind of, well, we kind of have some. We know there's this stuff called mass, there's matter, which has mass, and it seems to basically produce this field that is attractive. Um, and so at the beginning of the universe, we had to have all, well, we still had, had order. So the initial conditions were this super order state, fine. And then the universe starts. And then obviously then we have, so we have order at the beginning, we then basically have the emergence of causation and uh, the emergence of time and the second law. And all these things are kind of like, you know, um, really, these are kind of the four beliefs of physics because the second law, where does it come from? Well, it comes from initial conditions. Where does that come from? I don't know, just initial conditions. Let's just assume that these initial conditions are the initial conditions. 
and then say, well, what is time? Well, time is emergent from the fact that we have this, the initial conditions. And then what about causation? Well, causation is emergent from the fact we have these initial conditions, they interact with one another, and the second law goes out. But if you could just say, well, look, at the, at the origin of the universe, it was just, um, there was just no space, and there was kind of time, and or there was this kind of membrane that we would call this non-space space that was expanding, which gave you the symmetry, and which basically says, look, uh, there's just an ever-increasing number of um, configurations you could potentially access. So I'd call them virtual configurations. It's called a virtual space, but I'm just making stuff up. And then, and that, and, and then from that space emerges, and the measuring between the virtual space and space is time. And then, and then, actually, when you're looking at objects in space, you're not really looking at space. You're looking at the time it takes for you to go from object to object. So you're talking about the depth and causation. Because if you want to travel Voyager, you have to basically get, you know, build the Voyager probes, put it on a rocket. That took some time. You take it to wherever, fuel it up, launch it. That took some time. And then it's gone far away or far away. Is it very far away? Um, or in space, or is it just very far away in time? And then everyone says, you have things like, you know, the charge on the electrons. Why are all the electron charging the universe the same? Well, maybe because of the before space, everything was non-local and we all occupied a physical sustain you know all the mass and all the photons and everything in the universe came through the same point they were the same thing so of course they're related and the fact that we have non-locality in quantum mechanics is completely understandable but like i say you know i it, it, i think what i have to do is come up with experiments that really start to look at causation quantum mechanics um, or inter different interpretations of quantum mechanics and also selection and, and understanding. But for, for me, for the moment, I think probably I should concentrate on being a good chemist, whatever that is, and, and turning sand into cells and understanding how life seems to be a, um, it's able to mine novelty from the universe. Right. It, it, it's a tricky tightrope, right? Like, the physicist training is very mathematically formally robust and it's hard you can understand it conceptually somewhat but it's hard to supplement that just conceptually but at the same time you don't want to restrict these big problems to just one discipline right it's not principally a bad idea for other people with novel fresh ideas to come in and suggest things yeah i mean i think that i think it's really interesting i think whatever whatever my qualifications or lack thereof just to say look Super interesting as a you know as a chemist I have an intuition for the second law I'm but you know I'm brought up with it I, I set fire to things I like reactions you know I'm 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 interested in how I can build um, complex objects using chemical reactions and and really trapping as much of the features in there and so I'm really kind of you know I I I have an ear in the same way a concert pianist might have an ear for the music they play I have an ear for the second law right and so and so when the physicists kind of you know mess that up a bit i'm just like eh, okay guys we have to we have to talk about this so that's one thing that i think is really important we have to frame and the other thing is that if, if we the current physics that we have in the universe is not sufficient to explain the life forms in it so we can explain the universe but we can't explain life so that means that there are missing physical principles that allow life to exist that are not yet within physics. And that is the emergence of novelty, selection, evolution. And it's not out with, it's not out with the purview of physics. It's just that physics have never, it's all, physics has always been about looking back and understanding initial conditions, making simplifications, coming up with mechanism, and um, an explanation. I think explanation is super important. And then, and then being able to apply that to well-defined controlled systems that will behave in that manner, be it a Newtonian cradle or a satellite you're going to send to the moon. And so, and, and those things are good. But when it comes to things that are generating in a, a um, novelty, they kind of break the laws of physics. Well, they don't break the laws of physics, but they they do odd things that physics can't really understand. And so that's why I think physics as a discipline has to kind of 
really challenge that. And it goes back to basically the kind of pickle we got ourselves in with observers and quantum mechanics. So quantum mechanics has given us a lot, but it also has given us a lot of confusion because we have interpretations and quantum mechanics is deterministic. You know, it, uh, then we have the, the multiverse uh, kind of way of kind of looking at quantum mechanics that, that if you take the Schrodinger equation at face value, which I think you should, I think that the, the ever ready and extrapolation is actually not a bad one. It's just that people physically think it's the multiverse. Where actually it's not like that. It's probably about um, understanding what you know, what features a universe going to have because of the past, and then actually some of the processes selection and so on can help. There is a quantum mechanical selection as well as a physical selection, a biological selection. But I, I I think that's hard to to kind of articulate. Is is there a preferred interpretation of quantum mechanics that? Either you prefer or you find fits better with your thinking between Everett or Bohm or... I think Everettian, it fits better with... I would like to challenge the, fund, the quantum fundamentalists, right? And I'd like to challenge them on an equal ground. So I think starting with the Everettian view is actually quite good. Um, you know, I think that Penrose has some very interesting ideas about how, the, you know, to basically wave function collapse and so on. But I do think that actually quantum mechanics isn't that complicated. What is complicated is the fact that we have to use statistics to interpret experiments. And we're not very good at understanding the, the role of the observer and the experiment and the physical phenomena. And we kind of get our, um, get things really confused by that because we haven't really been able to step out of it. And that's because we think we, we assume that quantum mechanics is kind of like also, you know, timeless as well. Right. And that with their, your, the universe has to be observed to uh, to be doing stuff. And I'm just I, I, I just I just don't think that that's necessarily helpful. So quantum mechanics as a theory is really not a theory. It is a collection of tools that allows us to probe what is going on at the very small where basically uncertainty reigns, you know, and then we have all sorts of cool things like looking at non-local, non-locality, and um, and bell inequalities and all these things. Right, so the dynamics aren't terribly difficult. It's just we get muddied. Our ontology gets muddied because there's all these problems you mentioned. It, yeah, I think that's it. We just haven't come up with the correct ontology for quantum yeah. mechanics. It's as simple as yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, beautifully said. Um, just as an aside. What do you what do you make of how do you understand entropy? Uh, so there's of course a physical definition of entropy and then information theoretic views of entropy. Yeah. So entropy does a lot for us, right? Entropy allows us to, to take steam engines and make them more efficient, and take any engine and make it more efficient, and understand how to ex to extract maximum efficiency by making sure we understand the temperature difference and so on. The information view entropy doesn't tell us anything. It's kind of like I mean, what has it done for anything? It doesn't it doesn't done it, done anything? It predicts nothing. It does nothing. And I'm I know a lot of information theorists are going to be shouting, you know, at me. I'm like, it's okay to look at the entropy of a message when you have an encoder and a decoder, and that might even be useful to some degree to say how much no, you know how much noise is this really a signal? Shannon was brilliant at that, but Shannon information theory has been misused. When there is no encoder and there's no decoder, there is no use for Shannon information. Entropy is about is a is a is 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 about measuring the amount of disorder, and and entropy is kind of like it tells you what you've lost, and it is a good measure for how much time has passed because if you basically have let's say you put a load of gas in the middle of a room and you just dye it so you you have got this green gas in the middle of a room in a ball. And you come back an hour later, the green gas were gone, and the the whole room would be slightly, you know, fuzzy, like maybe a green mist. And um, and so you know the entropy of that gas and uh, of, has increased because its disorder has increased, it's become spread out. And um, and I think that what we do is we macroscopically label the end state and the beginning state. But if we were able to keep track of every particle interaction, we wouldn't need to macroscopically look at the entropy change. We would look at actually how the information is propagating through time and how those interactions cause those causes and effects 
to proceed in time. And all that mist tells us, that entropy change tells us, is that time has passed. Now, when we look at label the sort of systems and surroundings, we could do work. We could do work to somehow reconstitute the green gas somehow. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, we might have someone in a little machine that picks up every particle and holds it in the corner to stay there, you know, put it in a box, and then we take the box away. Um, but we need to do, but we still need to observe a net entropy change in the universe for that process to occur, right? Because that you're not going to have and uh, um, the 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 movement space to do that. So, so my understanding of entropy is very classical. What I think is um, that what we do in a way is we we have we only entropy is one of those things we only know once we actually put labels on with the beginning and the end. And I would like to go a bit deeper than that and understand the meaning of entropy. And that and that's and it may it does make me a bit sad when I see all this information theoretic stuff because it hasn't this doesn't tell me anything. What does it do? If you tell me the entropy change associated with a reaction, I'll be like, that's great. I know if that reaction is spontaneous or not in these conditions. If you tell me the information, the, the Shannon information or something, I'm just like, it doesn't tell it doesn't tell me anything. It's just like, yeah, that's it's a thing, right? It's like a, it's like a, some kind of beauty contest, you know. Someone's assessed that this thing is more beautiful than the other thing. Great, thanks. Right. I mean, and there's also dozens of disagreements between Shannon information theories. I mean, there are some really interesting people out there use this, and they do. They try and use it. In general, I haven't seen what is it used for, right? You know, I mean, you know, <laughs> if um. And so if, you know, if, if you make a measurement of something, if I measure amount of gold I have, I can use that to barter and, or something. I mean, I use it. If I measure the, the temperature in something, then I know how much more temperature I need to add for it to affect the process. When I measure the Shannon entropy of something, it doesn't tell me very much. You know, it might be like a kind of a descriptive property to say, oh, there's a bit of noise on this channel. That may be okay, I guess, right? But it, again, I think these these information entropy measures only have meaning when there is an individual that's encoded them and an individual that's decoding them. And this, and what we do is we kind of put metaphors on where what the encoder and decoder looks like, and we have to be super um, um, worried about that. So, in in your work in assembly theory, are you looking for a way to describe things without those labels? Yeah, I mean, assembly theory is like the invert. I mean, assembly theory tells you what you have, and assembly and entropy tells you what they're lo- lost. So, I think uh, entropy and assembly theory are deeply connected in that way. But I think a, a world where you use assembly theory, you know, you no longer need entropy um, because you you so. And what assembly theory basically does is um. Well, assembly theory allows you to, first of all, macroscopically, allows you to assess if an object was created um, by chance or by an evolutionary informational process. Wow, okay. But you need to be able to measure two things. You've got to need to measure um, the thing in high numbers, high copy number, and you need to be able to measure the parts in the thing. So that's kind of cool. But what assembly theory does, it allows you to trace back all the uh, the the, um, the the interactions between objects that give rise to other events, right? Um, at least probabilistically, you can say, right, if I've got this molecule and I chop it up on the shortest path, and I want to take the shortest route to make this molecule with these bits, what do I do? Including reuse, I add this bit to this bit, I reuse this bit, okay, because I've got memory, and therefore, what assembly theory does is says, what is the minimum amount of memory I need to have in the universe to make this complex object? And and if that memory exists for more time than to make one of them, I can make many copy numbers. So if that memory exists for more than making one object, the more complex the object, the more interesting that memory is, because that memory has to really exist. Whereas if the memory only exists to make one object, and then the memory is gone, then that's what you call a random ensemble. In fact, it would be the same. So. So what assembly theory allows you to do is to show how you can build things up by understanding the, the, the causal inter- interactions or the contingency. So then this is kind of like a very almost evolution-esque, say, ah, oh, for this to happen, this needs to happen, this needs to happen, this needs to happen, this needs to happen in this sequence of events. 
And so the fact that you're able to go through those sequence of events and get to your thing, you can think about how weird that thing is, the more steps you've got, because it could have gone off in one of a zillion different directions. And so and it, so it allows you to appreciate how unique some things are. Um, and whereas entropy just says, ah, oh, this is the average. This is my ensemble. Right. So with, and that's classified as the assembly index. Yeah, the yeah, the, the assembly index is classified at the moment as the number the number of um, the shortest the number of steps on the shortest path to construct the object from from the from the basic building blocks. Just a technical question. So I understand that why is it the the shortest path? So I understand that that's a lower bound, but <laughs> <laughs> everyone asked me that. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Um, you know what's coming. Well, actually, I mean, this is it's really funny when you invent a theory because, like, remember, assembly theory could be complete nonsense, and so you know, I don't think it is. But it's like I don't know. It seemed good. It just like you know did, um, but no, there's actually a more fundamental reason. Um, so my my reasoning would be. Um, if you take an object, um, uh, what it does, when, and you basically reduce it to the shortest path, first of all, that is a that is a finite quantity. That is a quantity. Every object has a shortest path to make it. So what that means is, if I come across that object, I know the minimum number of steps I must make to make it. That doesn't say it's only those steps. Because I'm sure things are made in long objects. How many people do we see being really inefficient? Well, we can say, don't do that, do that, right? But what I'm saying is like, so for literally, you know, for me to be able to, maybe I'm type, it, type a sentence, right? For me to type a sentence or come up with the word abracadabra or banana or something, I say, right, this is the minimum thing they need to do to make that string or that thing. And, and I can count those up. And the larger that number, the more improbable it is. And so, what by having the short by going for the um, the the shortest route, it gives me a nice baseline to say, look, shorter. You can't go shorter than shorter. So you and so you be, you you'll then have some confidence that something um, something is odd if it's over your threshold. Uh, but of course, the way objects get assembled, you know, it's probably an average. There's probably other things there. You could spend a lot of energy to go beyond that. But um, but really, it seems the shortest path is is incredibly significant because of the statistical meaning of those objects coming together in the universe. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Like evolution, for example, you probably have really weird paths to get to evolving the creature, but that doesn't matter because you can't really develop anything general out of that. The best thing you can say is the lower bound. Yeah, and uh, exactly. And another thing about the shortest path in assembly theory, we don't think about evolution. We just think about um, we just think about probabilistic processes to get there. So we have to take the shortest path, and it's like a minimization principle, perhaps. And then when we see objects that have that are complicated, have this assembly index or more, you're like, wow, this required probabilistically this number of steps to get there, and it's there, and there's biology making it, and then it must be other things making it. Wow, what? Let's have it look dig into this, and that's kind of what the 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 the, uh, the meaning of it is at least at the base layer. Right. So then, are you using that as a as a demarcation line for what constitutes life and not life? Yeah. Well, it's a bit more now. I think the shortest path is about really the minimum amount of memory the universe needs to have to make that object. Right. And it could be in some cases the universe just raises random. Right. It's like right, do done. And then that random object, like, well, thanks for making me. I'm also good at making myself. So now the probability that I exist is higher because I'm able to make myself. It's like a self-replicating molecule. So if you have a load of junk that makes a molecule that can reproduce itself, it's going to get faster. So, and that's kind of one of the cool things that we have to look at in assembly theory is that when the object you make on the shortest path, there's a chance of getting there. So it's the shortest way to get there. And once that object is made, if it can, if it can also, um, you know, help promote the production of itself and exist in space and time, then uh, something weird is going on. So th this may be a bit out of left field, but does assembly theory need to posit a reductionistic ontology? Uh, I ask because what if you have top-down top causality anywhere? Um, can you still apply assembly theory to that? Yeah, yes and no, right? So, I mean, it's like um, the top-down causality 
um, what, would you want to give me an example of what you mean by top-down causality before I answer that? Because it's a really cool way to answer it. So uh, what would you call a top-down causal process? I mean, I don't know if top-down causality exists or not, but I think the paradigmatic examples are um, have to do with human cognition is the cheapest one that I would take. So intention. But now how do you get how do you get there? So for human cognition, you have to go through Luca. Right, right. And then you have assembly blah, 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 and then top down top down causation comes from that, but it comes from the building up this framework. I mean, and so I, I think that top down causation is um probably not it's probably an ill posed question now, because I used to kind of worry about, you know, why do people get out why do people worry about top down causation? Of course. When the object, if if the object is able to act on itself in some way because it has some kind of uh, macroscopic function, I, it, it was built ma microscopically using selection over time, and that's fine. I have no problem with that. It, it seems entirely consistent, um, and it's the reason why I think top-down causation becomes important is people like to make labeling schemes and say, right, you are now you are this thing, and you are now causing this thing down here. You know, if I do, if I if I edit my own genes to live longer, is that top down causation? You know, if I go in the lab and basically make it, and I was like, right, I work out how I can live longer. I go in the lab and I make this thing with my hands, and then I basically inject myself. So I'm the macro state, you know, me, and I just inject myself, and then like, and then from the micro state up, my ribosomes or anything, you know, changes, and I live longer. Is that top down causation? Right, that's a good point. So as long as you have the lineage of the memory, that's all really that's yeah, that yeah. matters. Yeah, the yeah, top yeah. down, I bottom up stuff is just labels. And I think the lineage, the memory, just and that means in for assembly theory, you can remove top down causation as a concept, which becomes confusing ontologically. It also removes, you know, a, a kind of silly thought experiments like Boltzmann brains. Like you know, you could imagine a Boltzmann brain pinging into existence. I was like, well, you could imagine it. But um, it won't happen, and here's why: without four billion years of evolution. Um, and so I think that that's uh, um, something to bear in mind when kind of tackling that. But it is, and 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 what assembly theory does in a way, it it, um, it allows you to basically make a mapping in in the causal structure from the past into the future via the present, and um, and and then when you get novelty. And this is what I'm interested in understanding experimentally is how the universe makes a disconnect on those, on those causal trajectories, whatever you want to call them, for basically non-statistical, if you like, or non or not the average thing to happen. Something else happens that, that's kind of not impossible, but, but basically not expected. Right. right. Okay. So... Coming back then to where we started with with biology and different types of biology, uh, when you're looking at the different combinatorial possibilities of different types of biologies, does does assembly theory tell us something that they might share in common? Like, is there if you cluster the probabilities of all the combinatorial? I I don't know to be honest. I think that the problem is we're so assembly theory tells us how contingent things are. So I think we're pretty sure that, that, that biology on Earth is unique to Earth. Um, now, does that mean that other biologies on rocky planets where we had similar kind of elements weren't used, a similar repertoire, similar, not identical repertoire of organic chemistry? Probably, right? So I think assembly theory is good for that, uh, telling you about that. Um, and I, I think that, that we have to be super careful when we try and extrapolate the combinatorial explosion you know, there could be other plants with different elements on, right? Different pressure for different temperatures we can see of. So maybe there's more, more, you know, sulfur available, selenium or boron or something. And then saying the chemistry necessarily would be quite different. Okay. Well, what about what about intelligence? What's going on there? So that's an interesting question. Um, what is intelligence? I think intelligence is a... So selection does everything, right? Our conversation, our, our, uh, our interactions... Selection is probably what's causing us to have this conversation. And selection probably invented intelligence. And so what selection allows, so what it's selection, sorry, what does intelligence do? Certainly the type of intelligence human beings have macroscopically. Um, it's the ability to remember the past, be present in the, in, in the present and imagine the future. And if you're able to imagine the future on the basis of what you had in the past, then you can make decisions and do counterfactuals 
and you can think about things you might not want to do. That's one thing. You can also imagine problems um, and strategize. Um, and I think this is super interesting to humans. They have this internal dialogue where you can, I mean, almost, you know, imagine um, how you solve that particular problem, that you want this particular thing you want to try and do. Um, and um, intelligence really is really that the, the use of selection in a way to kind of um, to find solutions to problems, not by energy minimization, just by walking down a slope, but basically creating novel objects, right, to sample the space. You know, I think that's uh, probably um, the most uh, important thing that I think you can get out of that uh, kind of idea. So w w would would you think that intelligence, problems, goal-directed behavior, um, consciousness, cognition, I don't mean to lump all these things together, but just for convenience sake, are they are they contingent with our kind of biology here? Or do you see ways that they could be evolved elsewhere? Well, no, I think that consciousness, intelligence, uh, origin of life, um, built evolution and machines are all related on the scale. And I think probably the scale is you have selection that gives you stuff that can undergo evolution until you get like the first kind of technology that can basically terraform the planet the cell and then obviously the cell able is able to maybe they're based in seawater is able to then make you know become multicellular and then you know climb out of the climb out of the, the sea and then there's an argument for saying life needed um intelligence when it climbed out the sea because you could see further away and then you give you more time to think so you've got planning time whereas if you in a, if you're a fish in the ocean if you stop to think you're just eaten you know it's super fast so long distance vision gave you time to do that and then that's probably where uh intelligence came from but but intelligence is like i think we give too much credit to intelligence intelligence is the way selection you know actually wants to do its thing <laughs> you know, <human laughs> think it's like it's so funny that it's like the, the answer to everything is selection it has to be there is no other reason so like selection why do that selection you know um but i think that as a phenomena um human beings display an incredible amount of cognition and intelligence they're able to build machines do mathematics write poetry communicate to one another cheat one another you know, um, build fantastic machines. So I, I think that the, the, and also be creative, being creative is really interesting. And I think all those, all those uh, features, we don't understand how the human brain does that. Are you, are you happy to see consciousness as a mechanistic evolved process or? I don't know. I mean, People keep, I mean, like, you know, the panpsychist thing, the consciousness is kind of an entity. I'm just like, it doesn't make any sense to me, right? I could say that, you know, a bacterial cell has a little bit of consciousness, but I, I don't I don't even know that's a well-posed question. I would say that, um, but that, that cells, all conscious entities that we know of are made up of cells. Um, so do it, does a cell have a little bit of consciousness or just have a little bit of energy Vine channel in the right condition that could create an object that suddenly has this macroscopic qualitative effect and say, "Oh, I'm conscious." I just, I don't know. I'm. It's um, it's it's a non-trivial uh, question because we just so we so know so little about what intelligence is. What do you make of uh, IIT? It, I mean, it's hard not to see the comparison. I think IIT is very similar to. I have the same problem with IIT that we have with um, um, shallow information. Um, but um, I think that IIT kind of, but IIT actually in its flawlessness, because it's, it's, I don't know if it's, well, let's say IIT in some people's misgivings, I think that they, they don't take into account their lineage. So of course, you know, you know, every object like this that was made by intelligence is proof of intelligence and maybe intelligent. But it's not intelligent, like it's not experiencing like I am, but it was kind of, you know, made to solve a problem. So, on. so maybe it's, an artifact of intelligence. Um, I and I, I just think that we have to kind of maybe move past trying to measure it. But IIT um, integrated information theory is a start, right? And I would I wonder if maybe assembly theory can work with IIT or maybe or maybe help complete it. That maybe 
um, biology is able to produce objects with one particular assembly index and some parts, but what happened and some copy number, but technology, human beings inventing technology can go way beyond that. We can make machines with billions of parts, you know, that humans can cooperate on. And we, you know, and that type of um, kind of corporate intelligence is super interesting. Um, how do you account for abstractions or thoughts in, in assembly theory? And the emergence of abstraction is fascinating. I mean, I think uh, human beings learn how to do abstraction and they go all the way back to mathematics. I mean, one fundamental abstraction that you can't take away from a human is once you tell them the concept of zero, they can't give that back. There's no way they can live without it. But before the concept of zero, they, they weren't able to have certain me mental architectures to do things, right? Um, maybe the concept of um, compound interest, kind of an interesting one. The idea that we give you, we give, we give you the ability to take on debt. So you take that money that you don't really have that resource allocation you have. And the idea is to that resource allocation. And what you're going to attempt to do is generate more resources. That resource allocation is one of the fantastic things about capitalism. Um, and so the abstractions are required there. Whether it's a corporate entity, human entity, you know, um, and. Um, and I think that abstraction, the abstractions emerged in humans, right? Um, in, you know, very quickly after we started talking or beginning to talk to each other. So I think abstraction is entirely understandable. I don't think that abstraction is innate. I think abstraction was a collaboration between many different humans, many different tribes, many different conditions, many different trying to communicate and then imagination. And I wonder if you have communication and imagination a little bit of time, the natural thing will happen is you'll get some abstraction. Yeah. Again, it's all about the lineage. Yeah, yeah. I'm really boring. It's like, yeah, like, go back. Ask your granny. Or ask you, you know. No, no. It's a great way to think about things. Um, okay, so just to, to end off here, um, computation. So what's, do you mind just explaining for people listening uh, what's going on with computation and how's it going today? Yeah, so computation is a term I gave to um, a, a, a kind of a concept where we have an abstraction, a kind of description ontology for chemistry, and then a practical ontology where we're able to basically take that description and then program a robot to then make that chemistry happen. So make a drug, make a series of compounds, make a formulation. And really computation is about taking a physical input, be them chemicals or some other stuff, some code, um, and then producing a output that's reliable every time. And actually I wanted to build a thing called the computer, which does computation, or arrays of them so I can help crack the origin of life. So I can literally imagine like trillions of computers all doing slightly different experiments looking for selection. No one would fund that, right? So I did it basically and said, okay, I'll make drugs and robots for drugs and that. what can go wrong. Um, and, um, and computation actually was a, uh, the verb I gave to the word because one organization decided to, to trademark the word computer. And, and I was like, oh, you know, and then uh, um, so, so they trademarked it. And every time I used it, they started telling me off. I was using it. They owned it. I was like, OK, um, but but then I thought, OK, I'll just and then that inspired me to say, well, what do computers do? Oh, they do computation like computers can do computation. OK, what is that really? Let's is a computer just a gimmick, a brand name that deserves to be nothing other than trademarked, you know? Like whatever, you know, like uh, some kind of commodity. And I was like, well, actually, no, a computer is a generic com chemical. It's a ch computer is a chemical engine which runs on a programming language and chemicals to make desired molecule outputs. And so um, and then computation is the process of doing that. So I thought it's quite good. Um, and um, when I started figuring this out, saying, why don't I make a program for chemistry? Um, my colleagues just told me I was kind of bananas, right? And it's never going to work. And and so the more they told me it wasn't going to work, the more I just raised more money to do it. And um, yeah, we have a, a bunch of compu computers or computational systems, I should say, in my laboratory. Um, and um, they all run the programming language they all have been used to organic chemistry inorganic chemistry formulation science 
And what we're busy trying to do is to unify uh, some of the code base to kind of make it easier. And where are we right now? Well, we're able to make quite complex molecules. We're able to do discovery. We're able to look at unknown things. Um, we're able to look at inorganic materials and we're able to make what I would call you know, the holy grail, which is like a closed loop lab where you just put, put code and molecules in and really cool molecules and the code has come out and the code is consumed. So that's computation in a nutshell. That is remarkable. Yeah, I mean, in the beginning, I mean, I, I just, the thing is, right, it's, I don't know, I don't think it's remarkable. I think it's kind of, it's hard because chemistry is hard and it's dangerous and things fail. And I don't know, people would say you were never going to get the, you're never going to get things working the way you want because it's just too unreliable. So we work super hard to try and create an, uh, uh, the correct process description that would do most of chemistry. And I'm glad to say we've got there. We've done hundreds and hundreds of reactions now. We can reproduce work. We can basically make complex molecules. We can The computation code is now used on the origin of life rigs, which I want to build it for. I've built, built dynamic logic in, and also I use assembly theory to measure so kind of all these profound little projects are all working together. They're all trying to solve one problem, which is trying to make an alien. Yeah. Well, I mean, also the drug development applications are pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, so I mean, I started a company, and the company's dream is like is like uh, the company's name's Chemify. It's like the AWS for chemistry. Uh, it's kind of thing. The silent, you know, Amazon were doing all this stuff. But the thing that just grew and grew at Amazon was just all this compute and what they did with it. I mean, it's fascinating. And so Chemify is doing the same thing. AWS for chemistry, make the infrastructure for chemistry so everyone gives each other a code that runs in a robot or very, very minimal robot human being working on the bench. And you can just interchange molecules and uh, make discover new drugs, make new materials, sell code, I guess, and, um, and just really speed up the process of innovation at that boundary because chemistry and material science takes ages. Yeah, for sure. So how are you applying it for finding life or generating life so yeah so so the way to look at it so computation to targets you should put in well-defined target and you basically you know you the 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 algorithm we have take that target chop it up into well-defined KIDL and we run the KIDL we make the molecule and so that's a target-based system but what you can also do is use KIDL for designer experiments and say mix a with b with c wait 10 seconds do this do this do this and keep enumerating through a very long script and because the uh, the language is, uh, you know, enumerable and you can add in for loops and all conditional statements. You can basically make really complicated experiments just using a few lines of code that are identical. And I think that's something that we've, that we've really realized is super interesting. And so, um, so then the entire framework for the computation used for origin of life, that means the same pumps, the same valves, the electronics, the software, everything is, is, is the same. Yeah, well, I mean, I love that part about you, that you try to bring experiment into everything you think about. Yeah, so the only thing I have is the experiment. I still think, trying to think of the experiment that proves that proves there is this non-space space is the one that I'm kind of puzzled at the moment, but I think I have an idea. Yeah, the zero-dimensional membrane of the universe? It's not like, it's not like string theory. It's something so much more simpler about maybe reframing some aspects of quantum mechanics and also looking at the initial conditions. The answer, I think, is in the initial conditions. What, how are you approaching this experimentally, if I can ask that, and it's not infringing um, on IP or anything? Yeah, I mean, experimentally, um, I'm trying to generate novelty and understand the cost of novelty, right? So if I can understand the cost of novelty, I can then understand um, what I can do to um, kind of increase the novelty and what does it say about the fundamental limits of novelty in space and time is there um is there a limit right in any local area about how much novelty can be produced and how do you count it objectively so i think that's super important there are also some quantum mechanical interpretations experiments i'm trying to figure out um but but probably it's not the right time to discuss them in detail now because they are they, they really exist in my head in equations rather than words. <laughs> and so I'm just like, yeah, well, we'll squiggle like this, like this. And, you know, it's like, uh, it's very vague and very annoying and people will get cheesed off. Um, but I think there is, um, it, we need to understand quantum mechanics a little bit better. We need to understand the, the fact that how selection works a little bit better. 
you know, when we start to when we start to do that, I think all of the other things will come together quite nicely. Uh, you know, all ideas are cool. But what is special about some ideas is you know, they're experimentally verifiable and they rule out other ideas. I think one of the things that we have to do with the time thing is actually make something experimentally verifiable that people are going to use it to think differently. And I, you know, I think that that's a really hard problem, um, but not insolvable. And I think, you know, I'm going to concentrate origin of life, assembly theory, artificial life, computation, and look searching for novelty. And I think from that will come the uh, the the um, the the killer experiment. And you know, and if not, well. You know, it's just another chemist having a trouble, trouble, trouble with the second law.